All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you. And through you, be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome, everybody, to our third Theology of the Body session. And uh, it's been a crazy week, so I'm just going to announce that. I've been, like, super stressed out, which, if you're in my parish, you know why. And, uh, and so, um, so if I seem a little scatterbrained, I apologize ahead of time to everybody watching on YouTube as well. Um, we left off, so the last couple of weeks we've been talking about <clears throat> what life was like in the beginning and calling back to Jesus's conversation with the Pharisees when they ask, is there any cause for or any reason a man can divorce his wife or can a man divorce his wife for any cause whatsoever? And our Lord says from the beginning, it was not so. And, and so his answer is always to point us back to the way life was supposed to be. And, and so, so we're going to continue through his audiences where he refers to the beginning and then step into his audiences where he starts to talk about fallen man and he starts to talk about how sin corrupts human nature and specifically how sin distorts our relationality and it distorts the way we relate to, each, to one another, it distorts the way we relate to our own bodies and, um, and it distorts love mostly. And so, so I'm just going to go back to the slide I left off on, which was the at last slide, which I remember because I said at last we're done with the lecture today. Um, and I'm going to minimize this. Yeah, we go. So, so this expression at last is the expression that Adam expresses that he exclaims when he encounters Eve. At last, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, and so John Paul II writes, this expression of joy confirms the process of man's individuation in the world and is born, so to speak, from the very depth of his human solitude, which he lives as a person in the face of all other creatures and all living beings. <clears throat> and so, so it comes from the depths of his human solitude. It comes from the depths of this reality that he's been living in a world where he's the only creature created in the image of God. And he finally finds another person that's like himself. And so he seems to say, look, there's a body that expresses a person. He's seen like all of the animal bodies and, and everything else that's, that's like him, but not like him. And then he finally encounters his wife and he sees that, that she's a daughter of the same father. Sometimes I articulated it saying like he could look into her eyes and see that she knows the same God that he knows. And so John Paul II writes, the human body in its masculinity and femininity expresses the reciprocal gift, femininity for masculinity and masculinity for femininity. That, <clears throat> that our bodies themselves, our masculinity and our femininity reveal to us that we're created to be a gift for one another. That, that in that, in our reciprocity as men and women, 
the reciprocity of men and women reveal that we're called to be a gift to one another, that we're called to live in communion, that we're called to live in love. So this is a body, a witness to creation as a fundamental gift, and therefore a witness to love is the source from which this same giving springs. And so again, our bodies are a witness to the fact that creation is a fundamental gift. And they give testimony to love as the source from which that gift springs, that, that all of creation is given to man out of love, that, that a man is given to a woman out of love, and a woman is given to man out of love. And, and it is like a gift that God gave to us. And, and it's an important place to go and to remember. And, and I always remind couples that, like your spouse is a gift to you and, and we should like spend time giving thanks to God for sending me this person. You know, John Paul II wrote that often. And there's, there's a particular meditation that he wrote where he's speaking about a friendship and, and how he went to a spiritual director and he was in kind of distress about this friendship and his spiritual director basically told him like, maybe God gave you that person. Like that person's a gift to you. And, and every person in our lives is a gift to us. And, you know, like, cause sometimes even the people that kind of, uh, they, they grade on us a little bit, they can be a gift to us because maybe more than anybody else, they, they sort of reveal to us who we are in the midst of, you know, that unsettledness that we have in our own hearts. Genesis 2.24 speaks of the ordering of man's masculinity and femininity to an end in the life of the spouses and parents. So I'm going to just read Genesis 2.24 again. Which is that line, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and the two of them become one body. <laughs> and that simple line reveals the fact that that masculinity and femininity are ordered to the end of life giving. <clears throat> so aware of the procreative power of his own body and of his own sex, man is at the same time free from the constraint of his own body and his own sex. And so they're free with the freedom of the gift. And, <clears throat> and so as in the beginning, there's this awareness of the procreative power of their bodies, but they're free from any constraints. You know, like because of sin, we live under constraints. There's a constraint, like lust can be a constraint. Fear can be a constraint. Like sometimes people enter into marriages out of constraint. You know, like you have to get married because of this, that, or other social pressure. But in the beginning, the way God created us to be, love is free from constraint. And, and they're free to give themselves entirely to, to one another which refers to both free freedom from like sexual drive. Right? And, and so there's no sort of like uncontrollable urge. There's just freedom to enter into a loving union with one another. So John Paul II uses this term a lot, the freedom of the gift. He says, created by love, endowed in their being with masculinity and femininity, both are naked because they are free with the very freedom of the gift, that, that they're 
they're free from fear. They're free from shame. They're able to enter into relationship. God says this man is the only being that God created for his own sake. And he can only find himself by making a sincere gift of self. And, and so, so these two principles of original solitude and original unity are contained in that line. Most people attribute that line in Gaudium et Spes, which is a document from Vatican II to John Paul II when he attended the council. And, and there's an ordering in that as well. Right? There's an ordering in that as well. That, that we all have to recognize that we're created for our own sake, but we weren't created for a utilitarian purpose. We weren't created for somebody else's sake. It's not my job to meet everybody else's needs and not get my own needs met. I'm created for my own sake. There's something good in existing. And, and, that's, and again, that's a really important point that, that I think we need to affirm more that that's what we believe when we think about some of the things that, that people desire, right? Like young people desire so much affirmation. Like you have to love me on my own terms. And, and I hear that a lot from, from various groups or movements. And, and it's really only God that loves us on our own terms. It's really only God that loves us for who we are. And, and there's no utilitarian purpose. There's no sort of, I'll love you if you do this for me. It's just free. And then we fully find ourselves through a sincere gift of self. We come to know who we are in relationship to others. We come to know who we are in relationship. And, and again, that's a really important point. There's, there's one philosopher, um, Emmanuel Meunier, who he has this articulation in his book on personalism where he says that the you precedes the I which formed the we. And, and I had a philosophy teacher in grad school who would always talk about sort of grammar and how you can't use the second person participle. Like you can't say the word you unless you first, or you can't say the word I unless you first say the word you. Like I, I only have a sense of who I am in relationship to other people. And I come to know myself in relationship to other people and other people reveal to me who I am. And... <clears throat> And so we find ourselves through a sincere gift of self. <clears throat> in order to live in that kind of communion and love, there's the necessity of self-mastery. That, and self-mastery means that I have mastery over whatever drives, instincts, desires that I have so that I can make a free gift of myself. And, and self-mastery applies in all different areas of our life. It applies in our relationship to food. It applies in our relationship to the way we conduct ourselves with other people. Some people like who, some people can have like an extreme need to be affirmed. And so they want to tell everybody how amazing they are. And like, they don't really have self-mastery over that. Um, I had zero self-mastery over pizza when I got back from Thanksgiving. And uh, I said like a kind of a bummer Thanksgiving in some ways. And I got home and I like got to Eagle and I was like, I'm ordering a pizza. And uh, I haven't eaten carbs in a very long time. And, and so, so there's a necessity of self-mastery in love, right? A necessity of self-mastery in love means that I do, every act of love is because I choose it, right? And it's free and it's a gift. And so the man and the woman find each other reciprocally. 
right? They find each other reciprocally. The man is for the woman. The woman is for the man. Men reveal to women who they are. Women reveal to men who they are. And they also welcome the other as created for their own sake, right? So I can recognize a person's individuality, that they're unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable person that God made for their own sake. and love them precisely for who they are. And it's what it means to affirm the other person. Like affirmation is, is really a statement that says, whenever we affirm somebody, like the real meaning in it is it's good that you exist, right? It's good that you're here. And like, I might've told this story can't remember if I told the story the first week or not, um, just about somebody that I was working with in a counseling setting. And, and, and he kind of felt invisible for his whole life. And then, you know, he was briefing his story and his story was very much a story where like dad worked all the time. When dad came home, I had to leave the house so that dad and mom could be together. And, and he just never felt seen. And, and that resulted in him kind of acting out on social media and, and sort of desiring to be seen in, in different ways in different places. And, um, and I remember when he introduced himself and he was like, <clears throat> my name's Bob. I don't have emotions. I don't have feelings. And, and that was just kind of how he introduced himself. And, uh, and so he briefs his story, which was incredibly sad. And, uh, and, and I just kind of looked at him and I said, you know, it, it is really good that you exist. And, and I'm glad you're here. And, and then he just didn't know what to do with that. And then I watched him like when the weekend ended, he was like running around, like hugging everybody. And he didn't really know what to do with himself because he was having emotions. And, and he had experienced being known, right? Being seen, being known, being affirmed. And, and the fact that, that it's good that he was created for his own sake. And, and there's lots of circumstances in which um, people don't feel seen, you know, that people don't feel seen. And, and so, so even at the parish level, like sometimes, um, sometimes I, I, I try to say this in a funny way when, when I say, oh, see, there's a lot of new people here. And so just a reminder, like when you see new people, this is what you do. You go up and you say, hi, my name's. And, and you introduce them and say, I'm glad you're here. And, and like, this is what we should do because people will tell stories about like showing up in their new person in a pair setting. And like, nobody says hi to them or they go to coffee and rolls and nobody says hi to them. Or, or sometimes people will come to me and they'll be like, father, are those new people? I'm like, yeah, you should go say hi to them. <laughs> and um, because it's, it's just welcoming and affirming because every person, every new person that walks into like the Paris setting is a gift and, and there's somebody that God sent and, and there's a chance to encounter God in a new way in that person. In the whole order of creation, man will not cease to confer a spousal meaning on his body. Even in the period of historical sinfulness, the road from the mystery to creation to the redemption of the body. So even in the period of sinfulness, even between the, the fall and the cross, there's, we still see that there's a spousal meaning of the body. And, 
and so that's why when I talk about salvation history, I always use the word distortion, right? Because distortion just means you can still tell what things are supposed to be. It's just not clear. You know, we still know what love is supposed to look like, but, but we're just off by a couple degrees. And, and so the, the fact that we're created for communion endures after sin. Consistent giving, consistency in, like living in the freedom of the gift, bears witness to rootedness and love. Right? It bears witness to the fact that each person is rooted in the love of God. Each person, first and foremost, knows that they're a beloved son and daughter of God. And, and really everything we do, our activity, the way we are with others, the way we enter into relationship flows from the love that we first received from the Lord. So the beginning is the original and beatifying immunity from shame as the result of love, right? Which is a beautiful thing. It's, it's kind of where John Paul II is saying, like in the beginning, there's this original and beatifying. It's something that makes us holy immunity from shame. And, and so we can immune, immunize ourselves from shame by being rooted in love. Brene Brown is a, she's a shame researcher and has lots of popular talks that can be found on YouTube. And, and she always talks about how like shame is healed by vulnerability. And shame is something we experience when we're afraid of being known by another. And, and it manifests in all different and various ways. <laughs> But the thing that breaks through shame is being rooted in love. It's being known and, and experiencing the fact that I'm loved as I am, like in this place. Really, every time we go to confession, it should be a time we're immunized from shame. Because going to confession is a place where I'm going to let myself be completely known. And the result of that is going to be that I receive the love of God in the most profound way in this place. And, but, but a lot of times we don't experience it that way. You know, when I was teaching high school youth group last night, um, we're watching this video series on formed about confession. And, and so at the end of the first series, there, there was this kind of long reflection on how God is a person and uh, that he's actually a person. And you go to confession because you've ruptured a relationship with a person and I, I paused it and I asked the high school students, I said, do you experience confession as like repairing a relationship with a person? And, and they all kind of said, no, I kind of experience it like I just drop things off. You know, like I'm, I'm sort of carrying around this load and it's weighing me down and I go to confession and I drop the load off and then I leave. But the fact that there's a person, okay, like I've heard a relationship and I'm now reconciling with this person and I'm going to receive this person's love. And when I receive that person's love, that's going to move me to not sin anymore. That part of it was just kind of a disconnect there. And, and that can happen in lots of ways. Sometimes like we, we catch one analogy that we heard once when we were in third grade or something, and then we carry that analogy with us. Um, and because uh, I, was, I was just sharing a story of like, like I have a family member or a couple of family members where I, I'd become really distant from them. And, um, and I, became, I became very aware of this about two years ago. So about two years ago, maybe three, 
um, I had this realization that whenever my siblings have children, I sort of step out of their life. And um, because I was, I was at my brother's for Christmas and I went to dinner with him and we're at dinner and, and I was really reflecting a lot on when he was his daughter's age. Cause that happens, you know, like his daughter's like 10 now, she was probably eight at the time. Kevin was about that age when I left home and went to West Point. So I remember him when he was that age. And I was just calling a lot of that to mind. And I said to him, like, yeah, I just, I remember when you were Bridget's age. And like, I remember like tucking you into bed at night sometimes and just telling you that like, I'll always be there for you. And he looked at me and he goes, but you haven't called me on my birthday in five years. And I was like, what the, I haven't called you on your birthday. And I was just really convicted. And then I did the math. And, uh, and I figured out that his daughter was about five years old and I actually hadn't called him on his birthday since his daughter was born. And then I started to think about that. And I, and I was like, yeah, my one sister, I haven't talked to her really since her daughter was then my other sister. Like I haven't talked to her what the, and, and so I had this experience myself, like when I was, when I was two, my mom died, my dad remarried. My sister was born when I was about four and we moved. And when we moved, lots of people who I knew all the time that were like regulars in our household that would come and visit just didn't come and visit anymore. And I think I made up a rule that when new babies come, that's the reason that people don't come over anymore. And, and I just like carried that through. So then I had to go apologize to my siblings. And, and I remember talking to my sister and we had had a strained relationship for a while and, uh, and I just had to really repent. And, and I was like, so I know I've been really distant for a long time. I think I know why. And I want to do better. But I just want you to know that I'm sorry that I hurt you. And that's it. <clears throat> no. And if you want to know the explanation, I'll tell you. And, uh, and she was like, okay, I'll hear the explanation. And I kind of talked her through the story. And, and our relationship has been like so much better ever since then. Like, like so much better than ever since then. And, um, and I just kind of use that as an analogy, you know, like that's, that's really what we're doing with our Lord. When we go to confession is like, I'm going and saying like, this is who I am and this is what I've done. And I'm going to try to do better from now on. And, uh, and, and that's again, the primary place where like immunity from shame is the result of love. And, and I can think back on that relationship with my sister and how a lot of the distance between us had to do with my own shame about like, like, I know that I've been distant or there's something there. And then like her shame, because she thinks I judge her because I'm a priest and, but we don't talk about it. You know, we don't talk about it. I'm sure all of you and your families, when you get together with your family, you, you, you all talk about all your feelings really helpfully and right? we all do. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but now it's beautiful because like, the last time I was home, this is my sister that I go to Lions games with now. And, um, and we're actually able to have like really, really good like, communal conversations with one another. And that's what our Lord wants for us, right? That's what our Lord wants for us. <clears throat> so in that state of original innocence, it, it radically excludes the shame of the body in relation between man and woman. And which eliminates the necessity of shame in man in his heart or in his conscience 
right? So, so that state of original innocence, because they're immunized from shame, it excludes shame in the body, in the relationship between men and women. And, and it, there's no necessity of any kind of positive shame, but positive shame, when John Paul II talks about positive shame, he's really talking about modesty. And um, so it's not like shame in the sense that I'm a defective human being. It's, it's, he's really talking about like protecting the parts of the body. So he'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that section. Now, human will is originally innocent. It always just wants the good for the other. And there's an acceptance and welcoming of the other because God willed them for their own sake. Right? God willed them for their own sake. And, and so I'm interested in this person and what's unique, exclusive and unrepeatable about them. I'm interested in their gifts. I want to like know, I just want to know them. <laughs> the contrary to original innocence would be a loss of the gift and an inability to enter into relation with others. And in that place, the other becomes an object. They become somebody that's there to fulfill my desires and, and we can fall into using people or taking advantage of people or manipulating people. The exchange of the gift is realized by persevering, preserving the inner characteristics of self-donation and of the acceptance of the other. The woman is given by the creator to the man and welcomed by him as a gift. She discovers herself thanks to the fact that she has been received by the man. She discovers herself thanks to the fact that she's received by the man. So, so in the exchange of the gift, we come to know who we are in a deeper way, right? In a deeper way. And, you know, it's sort of like when like married couples, like if you think back to when you were dating and the first time you said, I love you and you're kind of nervous, are they going to say it back or not? And, and like, or, or the first time you ask somebody out and you're like, oh, are they going to say yes or not? Or, or what's going to happen? Or, or you were flirting and wondering if he's going to notice, you know, or like sometimes people don't notice. So I have this one friend's like, I think she was flirting with him at the grocery store for like three months. And then finally, like her mom said to the guy, like, you know, my daughter's been flirting. Why don't you need to ask her out? <laughs> then he did. Now they're married. They're really happy. Like they have a great relationship. <laughs> the man enriches her by this very reception. And at the same time, he too is enriched in the reciprocal relationship. The man's act of self-donation and answer to that of the woman is for him himself an enrichment. In fact, it is here that the specific essence, as it were, of his masculinity is manifested, which through the reality of the body and of its sex reaches the innermost depth of self-possession, thanks to which he is able to both give himself and to receive the gift of the other. Right? And so, so in that act of self-gift, it's for the man himself and enrichment. Like he's enriched in that relationship of love. Before becoming a husband and wife, men and women came forth as brother and sister in the same humanity. So, so again, I, I made this point on the first night that to just listen for the ways and how many ways and how many times John Paul II points back to this reality that, that we have to be rooted in the love of God first before we enter into relationship with others, right? And it, it's, it's something that acts against all activism, right? Or, or ideas or temptations that like, I need to do more in order to receive love. 
and and all of those kinds of things like I, I used to have this distortion that like if I loved my family better then they'll love me better but but that's like it throws off the order of things right it throws off the order of things like I can't turn my parent into a better parent by being a better son like that has to come from them and they have to receive it from something outside the system they have to receive it from God if a man and woman cease being reciprocally a disinterested gift as they were for one another in the mystery of creation they realize they recognize that they're naked it is then that shame about that nakedness is born in them a shame that they did not feel in the state of original innocence so as soon as they stop being reciprocally a disinterested gift. They recognize they're naked. As soon as I start to use the other person, I recognize that I could be used myself. Right? As soon as I as, as soon as lust enters into one person's heart, they realize that they could be lusted after. And I'm gonna pull up my next slideshow. So Jesus urges us to consider attentively what was from the beginning. Before and after sin, there's a different measure of spiritualization that implies another composition of inner forces in man himself, another body-soul relation. Other inner proportions between sensitivity, spirituality, and affectivity, another degree of inner sensibility for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And although an insurmountable barrier divides us from what man was then as male and female, the gift of grace united to the mystery of creation, we're trying to understand that the state of original innocence and its link with man's historical state after sin. Okay. And so, so again, like there's an insurmountable barrier between our own experience and, and concupiscence and the fact that we've all inherited original sin, <clears throat> but going back and reflecting on the beginning is, is trying to give us a sense of, of the way things were supposed to be to understand better that path to redemption. So original innocence says that the meaning of the body is conditioned ethically, right? The meaning of the body is conditioned ethically, that, that the body itself reveals how we're to act towards others. And the understanding of the fundamental meanings contained in the very mystery of the body, the spousal meaning of the body, is important and indispensable for knowing who man is and who he ought to be. Before being husband and wife, they came forth as brother and sister. One flesh union opens the creative perspective of human existence, which always renews itself through procreation. I feel like we already did this. Okay. Man appears in the world as the highest expression of the divine gift because he bears within himself the inner dimension of the gift and he bears likeness to God with which he transcends and also rules his visibility in the world, his bodiliness, his masculinity or femininity, and his nakedness. John Paul II talks about how marriage is a primordial sacrament, that it was a sacrament before the institution of the sacraments. And, and when he says that, he's talking about sacrament in the broad sense. So St. Augustine would use the word sacrament to describe any visible sign of an invisible reality so today we use the word sacramentals for things that aren't one of the seven sacraments that point to an invisible reality 
like when people wear a scapular or like rosary beads or things like that, there's a, there's a lot of meaning contained in that. Um, for St. Augustine, he would call all those things sacraments. <laughs> and so a sacrament is a sign that efficaciously transmits in the visible world, the invisible mystery hidden from God in God from eternity. And so marriage has always been a sign of God's love for his people in the prophets. We, read in Hosea and Jeremiah and other prophets, this way that the relationship between God and man is compared to a marriage. <clears throat> in Hosea, Hosea is made to marry a prostitute because the Lord wants him to experience things from God's perspective, who is married to an unfaithful spouse as the people of Israel are worshiping false gods. And then at the end of that prophecy, the Lord says, I will lead you out into the desert and I will be a husband to you again and, and restores that relationship, restores that marriage bond with his people. The sacrament is constituted in man and as much as he is a body through his visible masculinity and femininity, the body, in fact, and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. Right? And our bodies always make visible what is invisible, you know, the way we carry ourselves, the, whether we smile or not, the, the way we express ourselves. Um, like our bodies make visible the invisible. And, and when we're attuned to other people, like we kind of know just by the way they're carrying themselves, like, like something's going on with them. Right? And, and sometimes women are much better at this than men and, and being attuned to what's going on. Like sometimes families will describe like, uh, like a mom will always know, like there's something going on with the kids. And she might say to her husband, you need to go talk to like Johnny because like something's going on with him. The husband's like, what are you talking about? And, and then maybe he goes and talks and he finds out, oh yeah, there's actually something going on. Like, like there is something more intuitive and, it, and it's part of the gift of femininity. Original innocence with the spousal meaning of the body is holiness itself. And consciousness of the gift conditions, in this case, the sacrament of the body. In his body as man or woman, man senses himself as a subject of holiness. So in Genesis 4, John Paul II sort of looks ahead to Genesis 4 and, and starts reflecting on knowledge and procreation. He says, after the fall, sin and death have entered into man's history in some way through the very heart of that unity that had from the beginning been formed by man and woman, created to be one flesh. Adam united himself with Eve, his wife, who conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I've acquired a man from the Lord. And, and so even in that state of historical sinfulness, like she recognizes that her son is a gift from the Lord, that her son is a gift from the Lord. And, and every child, right, should be regarded as a gift from the Lord. And kind of one of my mantras is that children should be welcomed, not wanted. And, um, and because there's a difference between welcoming and wanting. And, and even couples who follow the church's teaching with regard to, uh, like, sexuality and contraception, they can have a bunch of kids, but they have, like, kids when they want and how they want, even if there's, like, a whole bunch of them. And, and, and then there's a temptation 
right? To see the child as a fulfillment of them. Like, and I've heard moms say this, that they feel worthless if they're not pregnant. Um, like, because they listen to all these Catholic podcasters who have 12 children and, and they just feel like they're doing something wrong if they're not like having another baby right now, even if there might be a reason for them to, for them to avoid pregnancy at the moment. A welcomed child is like a surprise from God. And, and then that child has its own identity, right? A welcomed child is a surprise from God. And, uh, and so there's like a difference between like, like the family where like they have kids when they want, how they want. One time I was talking to this lady and she was like, I've got a doctor, a lawyer, a seminarian. And like, she's like listing off, you know, her accomplishments and, and, uh, and then like, you ever know if a couple where there's like a 10 year, gap, 10 year gap, like they thought they were having done having babies. And then they went to the Bahamas on their honeymoon and they came back and then there's a baby, like that baby's from God. And like, I don't know what that child's going to be. And there's like more wonder about that. Um, because, you know, like, oh, that is like our Lord did that. And, and every we should have that attitude all the time. Right. Like as a priest, like I try to have that attitude about like everybody who walks in, you know, to mass on Sunday, like, oh, wait, there's a new person. And like, that's like a gift that God gave me right now. I have no idea what's going to happen with them. And uh, yeah, like I felt that way earlier in the summer when one of my former high school students like showed up and uh, I was just, it was just like really delightful in many ways. So I was like, oh, wow, she stayed Catholic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then last night she told me she's like they're moving so anyway um <clears throat> that happens um all right so adam united himself with weave who and she eve and she acquired a man from the lord so united her, himself to and new right <laughs> are the convertible terms right and so one flesh union is defined as knowledge so in in genesis <laughs> knowledge is a word that's used to describe the conjugal embrace. And that word new indicates intentionality. It indicates the deepest essence of the reality of shared married life, right? It indicates intentionality. And because really a couple is called to know one another completely and intimately, and then to express that knowledge through the language of their bodies. In Genesis 4.1, the couple experiences the meaning of their bodies in a particular way. They become one single subject of the act while remaining two really distinct subjects in this unity. And so there's, un there's union between them, right? While they retain the fact that they're unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable. They reveal themselves to one another with that specific depth of their own human eye, which precisely reveals itself also through their sex, their masculinity and femininity. In a singular way, the woman is given in the mode of knowledge to the man and he to her. This gift of self in a concrete way points to the uniqueness and unrepeatability of the person. Because it's a question of knowledge, it cannot be a passive acceptance of one's own determination of the part of the body and of its sex, right? Because it's a question of knowledge, it can't be a passive acceptance, right? It's, it's an intentional moment. The mystery of femininity manifests and reveals itself in its full depth through motherhood, as the text says, who conceived and gave birth 
The woman stands before the man as mother, subject of a new human life that is conceived and develops in her and is born from her into the world. So, so I really like this line in the modern world, the mystery of femininity manifests and reveals itself in its full depth through motherhood. And because like whenever talking about gender, I remember being a young priest in high school and we would talk about gender and we would use really binary categories like like men are visual and like and they think about one thing at a time and women think about lots of things at a time and women are more emotionally rooted but there's always people in like in between and it can actually create a lot of confusion when we speak about masculinity and femininity in extreme binary ways but motherhood and fatherhood are completely distinct things right? They're completely distinct things. And, and so really it's, it's a better practice to, like, to speak about the qualities of maternity and paternity than the qualities of femininity and masculinity, because they're found in their fullness in maternity and paternity. And, and it becomes a pathway. It's just a little more navigable and, and it leaves enough space for young people who want black and white things and reasons and it just leaves enough space for them to sit sometimes in their confusion. Um, and, and I found that helpful, you know, when discussing things like gender identity and the other challenges that we face in the modern world. The woman's constitution differs from that of the man. It differs bodily through motherhood. Motherhood shows this constitution from within as a particular power of the feminine organism, which serves with creative specificity for the conception and generation of human beings with the concurrence of the man and knowledge conditions begetting. <clears throat> so through motherhood, she shows this constitution from within. And, and that's a formulation that, um, that again is, is really important that maternal love right, starts from within that our experience of maternal love starts in utero and, and it's a kind of love that's always present to us. And, and it's a place where we experience like affirmation and presence and, and everyone's experiences that their first experience of love was their mother when they were in utero. And actually there's never a time when we didn't know our mother because, because from the time our brains were forming and we were becoming aware of the fact that there's another body it was always our mother's body. And, and then paternity sort of stands on the outside. Gabriel Marcel says that like paternity starts out of nothingness and like a father waits for his child. And then a father's relationship with his child starts after the child's born. And sometimes it starts after the child's like three and, um, and starts to separate from the mother and starts to distinguish the father from the mother. And a father always is calling the child forth. And, and so again, that order of love that we've been talking about, right? We have to be a son or a daughter before we have to be in a being from before we're being with before we're being for like, it's our first experience of being from is in a relationship with our mother. Our father's role is to teach a child to be for others, right? To be a bridge between the family and the world. And and again, that's a distinction that's really important. Um, I find it interesting, like in seminary formation, 
um, because what is considered pastoral for many is actually maternal and, and not paternal, or it's maternal without paternal. And you need both. You know, like God's mercy is maternal. Like God's always going to love you exactly where you are, no matter what. The call to conversion is a paternal action, right? That says you can be more, right? You can be more. And there's an order in that. There should be an order in that the way that we evangelize, you know, like our Lord loves you exactly where you are and he wants more for you, right? And he wants more for you. If I just say God wants more for you, it lands in this place. What are you saying? I'm not good enough. If we just say like, God loves you exactly where you are, then we never have conversion. Like I might as well just like stay stagnant. And, and so we need both things. Um, it was one of my reflections like during the Synod on the Family because there was all this debate going on in the church. And typically the debate was people who wanted the church to be either like completely maternal. You're all good where you are. We, you don't have to have a conversion. You don't have to change. Or completely paternal. You have to get your act together before you can belong. And it was like these two kind of this debate going on. But really like we need both things. And like, both of them are sort of arguing for just one or just the other. <clears throat> Through the body, the human person is a husband and wife. At the same time, in this particular act of knowledge, mediated by personal masculinity and femininity, one seems to reach also the discovery of the pure subjectivity of the gift. That is mutual self-realization in the gift. The man and wife know each other reciprocally in the third originated by both. So, so as they have a child with the help of the Lord, they also come to know each other in a deeper way. They also come to know each other in a deeper way. And, and I think that's a common experience in, in family life. Sometimes you come to know each other in a deeper way. And it's just like, wow, I didn't know I married a crazy person. So like I've heard, I've heard stories. Like sometimes when people have babies, then they're like a totally different person. Especially when we need healing and then we haven't gotten. The scriptures always praise motherhood in, in, various, in various places. The woman has full awareness of the mystery of creation, which renews itself in human generation. And the creative participation of God in human generation, his work and that of her husband, because she says, I acquired a man from the Lord. The birth of the new man reveals the fundamental truth about the birth of man in the image of God, according to the laws of nature. Biblical knowledge on the threshold of man's history, on this threshold, man stands as male and female. With the consciousness of the generative meaning of his own body, masculinity contains in a hidden way the meaning of fatherhood and femininity that of motherhood. So again, going back to motherhood and fatherhood being the fullness of masculinity and femininity. John Paul II says, the same is true about our, our contemporaries who in their questions do not, however, appeal to the law of Moses that allowed the certificate of divorce, but to other circumstances and other laws. Their questions are charged with problems unknown to the inner locators at the time of Christ. And, and so he's, he's sort of pointing out that <clears throat> like our contemporaries, they ask questions that aren't really the same as like appealing to the law of Moses, but they might ask questions appealing to... <sighs> 
psychological sciences, they might ask questions appealing to like other authorities, they might ask questions, just they ask all kinds of questions. And we live in a world with questions about like, is marriage really just supposed to be between a man and a woman? Or does my body really matter? Am I allowed to change my body? Am I allowed to express myself? Like, can I have like a feminine soul and a masculine body? Those are the questions that the people of our own time ask. And, and what John Paul II says is, I think among the answers Christ would give to the people of our times and to their questions, often so impatient, fundamental, would still be the one he gave to the Pharisees. In answering these questions, he would appeal, first of all, to the beginning. And, <clears throat> and so what he's proposing is that, like reflecting back on what it means to be fully human is the only way to answer the questions being asked in the modern world. <clears throat> that paragraph goes on to say, I think he would do so all the more so insofar as we continue to move further away from the biblical image of the beginning to points that are ever more distant. Right. And he wrote that in, I think 1981 when Bruce Jenner was still on my Wheaties box, <laughs> you know, and how far have we gone beyond since he wrote these things? And, and it's kind of, it's something that it's a question I always ask myself because <clears throat> all of these audiences were given between 1979 and 1984, and they weren't even reflected on when I was a seminarian by us in seminary formation. Now, or Love and Responsibility is a book that he wrote in 1960, and the church still hasn't really like taught the content in it, which answers so many of the questions that people have on their hearts today. So, <clears throat> so we're on the threshold of going to talk more about what happens in sin. And, and so just a reminder that, <clears throat> that what we see when we reflect on the state of historical sinfulness is that love gets distorted according to that same pattern, that the first place love is distorted is in our relationship as sons and daughters. And then it just gets distorted in the relationship between husbands and wives. And then it'll finally get distorted in the relationship between parents and children. In this section, John Paul II focuses his meditation on Matthew 5, 27 to 28, where our Lord says, whoever looks at a woman with lust is already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so he's appealing to the human heart. Christ the teacher urges us not to give the human, the kind of human interpretation of the whole law and of the single commandments contained in it that does not build the justice willed by God, the legislator. It's a question of adhering to the meaning that God put in the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and of fulfilling the justice that should superabound in man himself. Okay, so, so he, he really is calling us to go beyond simply what the law says. The morality in which the very meaning of the human being is realized, which is at the same time the fulfillment of the law by the superabounding of justice, through subjective vitality is formed in the interior perception of values from which duty is born as an expression of conscience, as an answer of one's own personal eye. 
And he says the casuistry of the books of the Old Testament, which was preoccupied with investigating what, according to external criteria, constituted such an act of the body, was at the same time oriented towards fighting adultery. It opened various legal loopholes for adultery. So casuistry is the practice of sitting around and having debates about what constitutes a sin. So, so there was a period in church history where moral theologians like Jesuits would sit around mostly and they would talk about, okay, like what if somebody has a mortal sin on their soul and they're on their way to go to confession and they get hit by a bus and they die before they go to confession? Do they go to heaven or hell? And then they sort of try to like sort out the answer to that. What if somebody commits adultery with a random person that they don't know? What if they commit adultery with their wife's sister? What if they commit adultery with like their boss? Like what if there's a power to like, like it's working out all of the things, right? Cause one sin is more grave than another sin. And it, it's sort of this practice of trying to figure out what's more grave or what's less grave. It would also be the practice of trying to figure out when you might not be responsible. So, so like sometimes there's reasons that people have less culpability. And, and so in the Old Testament, we had the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then there were all these kind of circumstances that they would say, well, it's okay for you because of this circumstance. And, and they're trying to find loopholes. We can live in a world where we try to find loopholes today. Like it sort of happens all the time. You know, like when is it okay to lie to your spouse? I, like Matt Fred just had a podcast on like when it's okay to lie to another person. Um, I'm not really a fan of that because I think it's really permission giving sometimes. And, uh, and I've seen it happen like multiple times, like, like it's not okay to withhold information from somebody that they have a right to know. Um, so, <clears throat> so what our Lord is saying is like, not to focus on the law, but to focus on like the good, right? To focus on the good. When I taught high school, all the kids wanted to know like how far is too far. And which is really like saying, how bad can I treat my girlfriend or my boyfriend before I'm going to go to hell for it? Because I want to treat them bad, but I don't want to go to hell. So, so I just want to know where the line is because I want to like, want to get right up there. And, uh, and I always use the analogy of the Grand Canyon, like, when you go to the Grand Canyon, there's a fence, but the fence isn't at the cliff. The fence is like back from the cliff. So like you probably should have a fence where you're, if you cross it, you're not going to fall off the cliff. Um, so Jesus speaks to every man. One can know the positive commandment, but can also have it written in his heart. And the heart is the dimension of humanity, which with which the sense of the meaning of the human body and the order of the sense is directly linked both the spousal and the generative meaning of the body. <clears throat> the heart for Jewish people like, is, was the seed of the human person. And when you read like Greek philosophers, they would say like the mind is where the, is the seat of personality or your reason is the seat of personality. For the Jews, it's the heart. <clears throat> so adultery in the heart, John Paul II defines as to look at a woman, to desire her, and it signifies clearly a clearly defined interior act. We're dealing with a desire directed, in this case, by the man toward the woman who is not his wife, for the sake of uniting with her as if she were. That is, to use once again the words of Genesis 2.24, as if they were one flesh. And 
and so again, like when I'm talking to young people about like what's what's impure thoughts, what's invasive thoughts, what's like what constitutes like a sinful impure thought, it, it's really to look at another person, right, with the desire of uniting with them as if they were your wife, and and that's where like that line is crossed. Sometimes we just have like junk that floats around in our head, and we're not responsible for it. <clears throat> the desire is expressed through the sense of sight. And these words apply ethically to both men and women, right? They apply ethically to both men and women. Like women can commit adultery in the heart as well as men. <clears throat> Concupiscence is the word we use for like the state of original sin or a fallen human nature. In 1 John 2, 16, it says, all that is in the world, the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the world. And the world passes away with its concupiscence, but the one who does the will of God will remain in eternity. And, and so John Paul II will use those three, those three areas, right? The concupiscence of the flesh, concupiscence of the eyes, and the pride of life to talk about how love becomes distorted. In fact, it is only a consequence of sin as a fruit of the breaking of the covenant with God in the human heart in man's innermost being that the world of Genesis becomes the world of the Joannine words, the place and source of concupiscence. <laughs> so another thing in John's gospel that's really interesting is that John's gospel refers often to the world. And like in John 17, and when Jesus is praying over his apostles, and he, he says like, they are not in the world any more than I am in the world. And the world always refers to the world of sin and the world of concupiscence. And, um, and so it's interesting how John Paul II sort of ties that together, that the world of Genesis becomes the world of the Joannine words. It should only be observed that the biblical description itself seems to highlight particularly the key moment in which man's heart, in man's heart, doubt is cast on the gift. So, so sin enters in when doubt is cast on the gift in our hearts. So, so it go, kind of goes back to those diagrams that I always use that, that every temptation starts with doubting the fact that God wants the good for me, or every temptation starts with doubting the fact that God can meet my needs. Or, or maybe we wouldn't admit to doubting the fact that God can meet my needs, but we oftentimes forget it. Like, like I just forget, um, like it's my favorite question to ask people. Um, cause somebody might come and talk to me and they're in a lot of distress and, and, and I'll say, so what did our Lord say when you went to him and talked about this? Oh yeah, I probably should talk to him about this. Like we just kind of forget that, that our Lord is there and, and, and that he's the first person that we can go to when we're in need. After original sin, we're alienated from original love. Adam says, I was ashamed because I was naked, so I hid myself. And with his shame about his own nakedness, the man seeks to cover the true origin of fear by indicating the effect so as not to name the cause. So he indicates the, the effect instead of naming the cause. Right? I was afraid because I was naked, which is the effect of the fact that he ate the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Like he doesn't just say to the Lord, like I ate the fruit. You told me not to eat. And I'm afraid you're going to smite me out of existence. So, so he doesn't 
like claim what he did. And, um, and again, I just really like that line because we oftentimes name the effects, indicate the effects so as not to name the cause. Like, like sometimes when we go to confession, we can confess our circumstances instead of our sins. Or we can confess the effects instead of our sins, instead of the cost. You know, like, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been a week since past confession. I've just been super stressed out, and uh, and I got this thing going on, and and there's all these things, and I did this. And and so we sort of, like, focus on the effect and, and not the cause. Like, all those things are circumstances. I know as a seminarian, I used to try to give a moral theology lesson to the priest when I went to confession just to make sure that he knew that I wasn't really culpable. So I want to make sure that he knows I'm not really that bad a person instead of just going in and saying like, this is who I am. This is what I did. This is what I deserve. God says, who told you you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree? So the Lord names the cause and, and that's an act of mercy for him to name the cause because he wants to make sure it's as if to say, I want to make sure that you know, that I know everything you've done and I love you anyways. I love you this, with everything you've done. And, and that's the person I love. Right? I don't love the facade person. I don't love the person you want me to think you are. I love you. Right? I love you. And I see you. And I know you. <clears throat> so man suffers damage in what belongs to nature itself. And that threefold concupiscence doesn't correspond to the fullness of that damage, but to the damage, deficiencies, limitations that appeared with sin. It's a lack that plunges its roots deep into the original depth of the human spirit. Right? And so the concupiscence is a lack <clears throat> that plunges its roots into the depth of the human spirit. Right, that we experience the fact that there, there was supposed to be something here, but it's not here. Or I'm, the spirit was once here and it's not here. And we kind of can experience, like whenever we experience guilt, it can feel like a kind of empty feeling or it can feel like a void. And we are about at an hour. I'm going to do this slide and then we'll wrap up. So at this point too, as we cross into historical sinfulness, there's a radical change in original nakedness, that ability to be transparent and penetrable. The body was from the beginning marked, so to speak, as the visible factor of transcendence in virtue of which man as person surpasses the visible world of living beings. In this sense, the human body was from the beginning a faithful witness and a perceptible verification of man's original solitude in the world. Also through masculinity and femininity, a transparent component of reciprocal giving in the community and persons. But now man in some way loses the original certainty of the image of God expressed in his body. And, and so the fact that our bodies revealed that we were different from the world, the fact that our bodies revealed that we were the image of God. The fact that in masculinity and femininity, we could be transparent and there could be this reciprocal self-gift, like all of that is distorted. <clears throat> and there's an inability or a reluctance to allow ourselves to be known by others. And, and that reluctance, again, it's a reluctance that we continue to struggle with. We continue to struggle with that like 
with a reluctance to really let myself be known. And as we grow in holiness, you know, we become more transparent. We become better at allowing ourselves to be known by others. I'm going to stop slides there and take any questions anybody has, and then we can wrap up. Any questions in the room? Any questions online? There might be brave Zoomers because they're not taking the class with their neighbors. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody's unmuting, though. Okay, good. No. All right, it's about 8.05. I'll just pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, as we are entering into this Advent season, in this time of preparing the way for you in our hearts, help us to become aware of the ways love has been or continues to be distorted in our own hearts. Grant us the courage to truly allow ourselves to be known by you, by those who are closest to us in our life. We pray for the grace of making a good confession during this Advent season, that we may truly receive you with great joy as we celebrate your first coming at Christmas. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.